Amen. Daniel chapter 2 is where we are. And I was telling my little granddaughter, if you listen to this, you can understand this. And he can, because it's a story. It's a story that's being given to us, the, a true story from the Word of God, an incident that uh, God has picked out for us uh, to understand from His Word. So may the Lord help us that way. Uh, it's a dream. It's an often misinterpreted dream, I'm sad to say. But just remember this as we go through it tonight. It's eschatology for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's eschatology for Daniel, but it's history for us, but it's history that's still going on. The history hasn't ended. The story is not over yet, uh, but um, it's not for some future day uh, that uh, hasn't come yet. It, it has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled, this particular dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. So as we come into Daniel chapter 2, Daniel and his three friends occupy an important place in Babylon society. They were outstanding students, achieving far beyond their peers, as we saw from Daniel chapter 1. And uh, there was a believing remnant in a pagan land. And whether there was more than four, I would suspect there was more than four true believers in Babylon that had been taken. But these four are the ones that are centered upon. And um, it was really God would rule history to their advantage, even if it didn't appear to be the case. So, we're going to do a lot of reading tonight and make comments as we go Matthew Henry style, even though I did not consult Matthew Henry for this. So, there won't be any plagiarism of Matthew Henry here tonight. Uh, maybe we come up with the same thing. Who knows? You can check it later. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is where Daniel goes from, from Hebrew to Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. They said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live for, <coughs> o king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Makes sense, right? That's a reasonable request. Uh, uh, anything else would be unreasonable. Well, it's unreasonable. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Well, um, that's kind of an amazing request, you know. I had a dream. Now tell me what the dream is. I said, well, uh, we can tell you what the dream means if you tell us the dream. I said, I want you to tell me the dream and what it means. And so this is um, a ridiculous request, but it actually came from the Lord. Uh, no other king had ever asked for such a thing as that. You might remember Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, but he told Pharaoh. that Pharaoh told him the dream, and then he interpreted it, which makes all the sense in the world. But this dream was a dream like none of that Nebuchadnezzar had ever had. 
This dream was given by God himself to the pagan king. And if it uh, wasn't to be glory of Nebuchadnezzar, it was to be to the glory of God. And it's often misunderstood. Um, our, our King James Bible is a very reliable version. But uh, if you look at verse number 5, if you have a King James Bible, uh, you'll find something very interesting there. Uh, because it says, um, uh, the, it says uh, the, the thing is gone from me. And so it's been believed by a lot of people over the years that uh, just read that. It says he forgot what the dream was. But no modern translation would translate it that way. It doesn't, the thing is gone from me. doesn't mean that the dream was gone from him. It meant the decree is gone from me that I'm going to do if you don't tell me the dream. And so it's really just a misinterpretation of what the King James was correct to say. But in modern language, these things get confused and lost. So our modern translations all make it very clear that the word is from, the, the ESV says, the word from me is firm. Okay, so we know what we're talking about. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't forget the dream. He knew it well. It was because he did remember it that he could test the wise men. And, um, of course, they could fool him, tell him what the interpretation was, and make something up. But he wanted to put them to the test. Verse number 7, you know. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we'll show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. So here's the test that he puts them to. And oriental kings uh, are known for their cruelty, and uh, sometimes even outlandish requests, and lavish uh, threats, and lavish promises. You know, you hear sometimes they're saying, up to half of my kingdom, you know, which couldn't possibly be true. You can't give half your kingdom away and, and still be the king, you know. But these are the lavish, outlandish um, kinds of things that the Oriental kings would say. So the request was ridiculous, um, but beyond the ridiculous and unreasonable request was the hand of God, the hand of God, who gave the dream, who would give the interpretation and it would all happen right in the nick of time. And uh, it would promote Daniel to an even higher place in the Babylonian administration. So we continue on. The decree from the despot goes forth, kill all the wise men, kill those who faked their way into being the king's counselors by telling the king what he wants to hear, kill all those who are the cream of the crop from the other nations. That would include Daniel and his three friends. And we pick it up from there. Okay. Um, verse 9. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So maybe it's not a, quite as unreasonable as we thought. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So now they're saying something that's true, except don't make it plural. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, 
and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So you see, right in the nick of time, God works. Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now again, um, there were all kinds of rules for approaching an oriental king as this time. You can read it in the book of Esther and see that kind of thing happening. So this is really just a shorthand way of uh, saying that the king got the word that Daniel and his friends uh, were going to interpret the dream, tell him the dream and interpret the dream for him. Uh, we can actually see in verse 24 uh, that Daniel uh, wasn't able to just go in and speak to the king any time that he wanted to. So Daniel approached the king through one who had higher rank than him. And that's all just the protocol uh, of the Orient there. Now, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And um, we, we actually see that uh, Daniel was well known at this time. Uh, go back to chapter 1, verse 17. It's kind of interesting, whether it's foreshadowing or whether it was something that was happening at other times too. One uh, seventeen says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, we're going to see that as we go through the book. There were other visions, other dreams that Daniel interpreted. Whether he had done any such thing earlier, well, it's not recorded that he did, but um, we see that. So it could be foreshadowing of what is going to happen in the ministry of Daniel, or it could be that there were some things that had happened before. Well, it won't be the last time for sure. And the vision, the direct answer to the prayer meeting, and that's what they call it. They call a prayer meeting, verse 19, verse 18, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the Babylonians, and then uh, the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel, in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So they had a prayer meeting, and the prayer was answered, and Daniel was going to be able to interpret the dream. And we go to verse 20. Daniel answered and said, and this is like a psalm, reads like a psalm. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have no understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So, with that being said and done, and all praise and glory to God, and you're going to notice, Daniel never takes credit throughout this entire situation. He always gives all the credit to God. But in this very next verse, <coughs> excuse me, 
in this very next verse, we find a man who's more than willing to take credit for something that he didn't even do. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And it's almost hard not to laugh uh, as you read that. Uh, because Arioch didn't find anybody, you know. Uh, Daniel found him. But uh, he kind of takes credit before the king. I mean, that doesn't help. Kind of helps build your resume, right? If you can tell everybody how great you are there. So there he goes. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers could show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And that has tripped up people over the years, the latter days. And some have misinterpreted the dream and put it off into, they've seen it in the past, and then put it off into the distant future. And when it says latter days, that's good. Aha, that has to be the end times, maybe the millennium, uh, maybe the tribulation. And um, that's kind of the way I was taught way back when in the, in the old days there. Um, kind of go back about 50 years for that one. But that's the way I was taught, the latter days. And, and uh, we're going to see a, a statue with ten toes. And the ten toes are, are seen to be the ten horns in Revelation and seen to be a revived Roman Empire that's going to happen someday. And, and just those things just, and so they're always looking for, it was always the, the common market, the European common market. You know, when we have ten nations in the European common market, then we know the end has come. I don't know if you ever heard that one, you know? One, one person's heard that one. Anybody else heard it? No, ah, two, two, I see that hand, okay. Yeah, well, that, that was a doctrine that was taught, the revived European common, well, um, those days are long gone. There would have to be some great catastrophes for there to be 10 uh, countries in the European common market and all that. But anyway, I, I don't want to divulge. The latter days, what do we live in? We live in the last days, right? We live in the last days. It's talking about us, actually, uh, because there's not going to be any other days to come except the last days. When did the last days start? Well, they started when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth and fulfilled his ministry, died and rose again, and ushered in uh, the church age that we have, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and put it all together into one big package. And that's when the last days began, because there's not going to be any other days to follow except the new heavens and the new earth after the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Okay, so that, that's what we mean by latter days, and that's really remarkable if you think about it. That's just remarkable that this prophecy would have such exacting detail about the time in which we live, and we're going to see that as we go. Okay. So let me pick up where we left off here. There's a God in heaven, verse 28, who reveals mysteries 
and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, and here he goes, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And it kind of goes unsaid because Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king and a wicked king. And we're going to see in Daniel 3, he's going to throw the, wife, he's going to throw the three Hebrew children into the fire in a very wicked way. In chapter 4, he's going to have pride and talk about his greatness and his wonder. But the end of chapter 4 gives us hope that maybe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, that, that God got, got him, you know, and uh, God gets anybody he wants to get, and got, God got him. And uh, we'll be talking about that as we go. But um, So anyway, as you go, here's the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel directly from God. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Now, as we read this image, I think uh, you maybe have seen pictures of it and kids in, in Sunday school get flannel graphs of it. And, and at least they used to get flannel graphs. And, uh, you know, get this kind of thing. And, and just think of a, a, a knight in shining armor, you know, that's made up of, of these parts, but really, really huge. Really, really huge. So that will kind of give you an idea of how to visualize this word picture that comes. You saw, King, behold, a great image, huge. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then look at what happened. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together, these, these metals, these heavy, precious metals, were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there you go. Okay, that's the word picture that we have. And uh, we are not left uh, without an interpretation. Uh, Daniel, of course, gives the interpretation. Uh, but we actually have history behind us to understand the interpretation, too. This huge statue, head of gold. Chest and arms of silver. It's kind of interesting that there are arms of silver. It's not just a chest of silver, there's chest and arms. Uh, because that tells us that there's going to be two things, not just one. Okay? And the same thing's going to happen with the middle. The middle piece brings it all back together of bronze uh, together again. But then it branches off again into two legs, as we'll see. And that's going to be significant to this whole thing. And then, of course... Uh, the, the clay and the iron mixed together, and that doesn't go very well, clay and iron mixed together, and it doesn't go very well for the statue either. But when the statue was hit by a rock, 
statue disintegrates, basically. And, and do remember, this statue is one statue. It's not, it's not four statues. It's, it's one statue. Because one nation takes another, which takes another, which takes another, and then there's the destruction that we see. So it looked permanent. It looked terrifying. It was made of metal. It was bright and shiny because of the sun, but it was totally obliterated by a relatively small and seemingly insignificant stone. And of course, that's, that's the real message here, uh, more than any other. The rest of the four nations proves the veracity of the word of God. But uh, the most important part of this is the stone that was cut out of the mountain and became a great mountain itself that filled the whole earth because that's obviously the kingdom of God uh, through the gospel that's gone into all the world and the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now that's the part that should thrill us, you know. Every nation will eventually come to an end. Mighty nations fall. The United States, if, God does not re if Christ doesn't return, I couldn't tell you in how many years, uh, will not be here as it is forever because no nation's ever lasted forever. And uh, we certainly are on a path uh, that will lead to destruction if we don't turn around. God could turn us around, but uh, eventually uh, we will meet the same fate if God so allows. But there is a spiritual nation that will never end. And the church will never end. It'll be swallowed up in victory, as we see in the book of Revelation. A people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. A mighty force that surrounds the throne that can't be numbered, all redeemed by the conquering rock, the king of kings and lord of lords. That nation will never perish. We know that absolutely. You know, a million years from now, if it were to go that way, it would still be here. I don't think it's going to be a million years, but I'm just telling you, you know, it will never end. Now let's look at the individual pieces. Okay, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and under whose hand he is given, whereby they that dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was pretty glad to hear that. In fact, as he looks out over his kingdom and the hanging gardens of Babylon and everything, he says, look, look at mighty Babylon that I've built and all that I rule over. It was just absolute pride. So he, that would have filled his heart with pride. But um, the rest of the story, and this is where Daniel's courage comes in. Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to end. It's not going to last forever. And of course, it would end very suddenly and, and very sharply. And Daniel dared to actually tell this despot that because he was going to tell him the truth. So you want the interpretation? Here it is. You're the head of gold, but look at verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Of course, that's the Medes and the Persians. And we'll see that happen in the book of Daniel. And then the next one we won't see in the book of Daniel, although we will encounter this kingdom in the book of Daniel again by way of prophecy. So another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And that's why there's the two arms. 
the Medes and the Persians, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and that's why it's united there in, in bronze. But um, we know that the Greek Empire fell apart, you know, as many nations do. And as it fell apart, um, it actually influenced mighty Rome because um, Greek became, well, Koine Greek became a common language amongst the people and a form of Aramaic also uh, took place there and Greek culture took over. And so all these things happened uh, even though Rome conquered, Rome didn't obliterate. Rome liked to assimilate is what it did. The mighty Roman Empire. I, I don't know why I'll say this. It's crazy. But, um, you know, there, there was a poll taken. How often uh, do men think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> they do a lot, you know. Why? You know, it doesn't make any sense, but uh, they just do, you know. Roman Empire... Uh, Pretty well known by everybody, anyway. So anyway, um, Dan Daniel dared speak the truth that God gave him. So the Medes and Persians, the Greek Empire next, and it was an undivided nation under Alexander the Great, uh, who we will see again in the book, and eventually the lower body that now divides into two legs, probably based on Syria and Egypt, and then Rome takes over, um, and the Greek kingdom would become divided, taken over by the mighty Roman Empire. And uh, like I said, God would use that. And uh, the Greek language uh, becomes a uniting force in God's purposes, just like the Roman nation became a mighty force in God's purposes by uniting the nations together, creating a, a road system that could be used by the early Christians to go from town to town. And we we're just given Paul as our example uh, that would use the road system and the navigation system to go from place to place to place to place and spread the gospel. So, verse 40 is the muddy Roman Empire. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. That would happen later. But some of the firmness of iron shall still be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So two legs, probably we could, I don't want to put too much into it, but it well could be just like the Medes and Persians with two arms, that the two legs have the idea of the east and the west. And most of us are more familiar with Western civilization and Western history. And we think of the Roman Empire, but um, don't ever discount the east. Constantinople was set up and Constantinople became uh, one of the most powerful cities, maybe the most powerful city on earth at that time as it continued on with riches and heights and everything like that. Of course, it too fell after Rome fell uh, almost a millennium later as the Turks took over the city and even changed the name of the city of that very prosperous. It's, it's an interesting study uh, to do. 
to see the eastern part of the what was the Roman Empire. And, uh, the, and for Rome, of course, the Visigoths came and sacked the city under their mighty king, Alaric. I had to get that in there. Because <laughs> my grandson's name was Alaric, and you just saw him. Mighty King Alaric, which, which means a powerful king, or mighty king, or, or you know, that, that's what the name happens to mean. Uh, I was just doing a little research on the name and uh, found out that uh, it became wildly popular uh, for about three years just recently, and uh, not too many Alarics being named anymore. Just it had, boop, boom, for whatever reason. Okay, but anyway, um, that the, under King Alaric, it, was, it wasn't him really, it was the stone cut from the mountain that's taken over the entire world. And verse 44, and in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That's incredible. That, that is prophecy, and that's something that only God could do. And Nebuchadnezzar had to admit, this is something only God. Only God could tell me what my dream meant. Only God could foretell the future. And why can God foretell the future? Because he controls the future, that's why. You know, it's not a matter of he looks into a crystal ball and looks ahead to see what's going to happen. God doesn't look ahead. God couldn't even look ahead to see something that he didn't already know. God controls the future absolutely from beginning to end. And we look at it from this side of a, well, there's a beautiful tapestry that's been made by God. And a beautiful, beautiful design. He's designed it all, made it perfect. And uh, it's, it's wonderful and awe-inspiring. But we are standing behind the tapestry and we look at it and it looks like nothing but threads and, and uh, nothing but uh, just chaos. Let's face it, the world looks like chaos, does it not? I mean, just think um, all you gotta do, if you don't think the world, I wouldn't advise you to do this, but if you don't think the world's in chaos, just turn on the news one morning and watch an hour of news and you'll see nothing but chaos, you know. Wars in Ukraine, wars in Israel, and, and uh, all, all of that. Threats from Iran. Uh, Houthis, just a, a small, almost tribal people that have been given all these weapons, bringing uh, commerce of the West to a standstill by taking over the, uh, their, the canal area. So chaos rules. There really isn't any chaos. God's in control of it all. He's in control of, of the macro and everything that's going on in the world and everything that will go on in the world. And you know what? Even more impressive than that, God's in control of your life. Your life. And Christian friend, he cares about you. He loves you. And you're going to have trials. Good message you heard this morning about trials, right? Okay. Psalm 40, it's really true. It's not only in Psalm 40, it's in many, many other places. God's in absolute control of all of these things in your life. 
And so we can just look. I mean, what, what could Daniel have done? If Daniel was like you and me, probably, and the decree goes out that all the wise men are going to be killed, we go, oh, no, what are we going to do? We're going to get killed. You know, we're going to die. And uh, panic. Daniel calls a prayer meeting. And Daniel goes to God. And God answers Daniel. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. Now, obviously, this is special grace given by God. I don't expect to ever interpret a dream or, or visions like that. That's not really what we, we've been called to do. We've been called to proclaim the gospel. So God sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Sets it up in the time of Rome. Did you notice that? It's during the time of Rome. When did Jesus Christ come? During the time of Caesar Augustus, right? And of course he, he suffered and died at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And our king lives forever. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. And uh, you have to admit, this was given 2,500 years earlier, at least, and the word of God still proves true. We're part of that kingdom, which will never be destroyed, and it's absolutely certain that the church will still exist when Christ returns. Now you may say the church covers the world, but it only covers a small part of the world. And that's true, only a small portion. That's why we talk about the remnant. That's what the remnant is. The remnant is a small portion of a larger whole. And uh, God has a church all over the world, although in some places it's not very big, you know. And um, that's not impressive. Big is not impressive to God. What's impressive to God is his will and his purpose and his remnant that he loves. So let's conclude here with the rest of the story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, verse 46, and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Still a pagan, right? Still a pagan. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. A grand example of how history really is his story. It's no great thing that God tells us the future. As I said, he controls the future. He doesn't look ahead, you know. Christ's kingdom will never be destroyed. Much of that kingdom may be the majority, much of that kingdom, possibly the majority is already in heaven, or it could be that the majority of that kingdom is still waiting to be born or waiting to come to Christ, but there'll always be a kingdom on earth until the Lord comes. Men and women are still coming into the kingdom through the gospel. And remember this, we sow the seed, but not all of it grows. Does everybody that, hear the gospel, everybody that hears the gospel, do they all come to Christ? No. A lot of people hear the gospel and are gospel rejectors, which is even worse. It's even more terrible. 
even more horrible. We sow the seed, not all of it grows, and we can't make it grow. If we try, if we try to be the one that makes it grow, then what we end up doing is doing God's work in man's way, and it will fail. Now, you might be able to build a church of 40,000 people that come to hear you every week and tell you that you're living your best life now, and he's right. Because it's going to be your best life now, and it's not going to be so good at the end. Okay, that's just the truth of the matter. Joel Osteen, false prophet, a wicked false prophet, I might add, that's lying to people by telling them half-truths, you know. We're not saying that some people couldn't come to Christ uh, through Joel Osteen, because uh, God speaks through Balaam's donkey, too, does he not? You know, so there you go. <laughs> so God could do that if that's what God so willed to do. But telling people half-truths is not the way to do it. We sow the seed, not all of it grows. In fact, most of the seed does not produce eternal life. And the parable of the sower tells us that. Four different kinds of soil, and only one produced true fruit. One day, there will be only one kingdom. And one day, that will eternally be one kingdom. And heaven and earth will be one. And Christian friend, we'll see with our own eyes, in our glorified bodies, the wonders of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when every kingdom will have been thrown down and the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to be King of kings and Lord of lords, because that's what he is right now. He'll continue to be King of kings and Lord of lords, except he will no longer have an enemy. And that'll be a great day. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we marvel at your word. And some people don't marvel at your word, Father. The skeptics tell us, well, the book of Daniel was written much, much later in time. And so it just purports to be giving prophecy. But Lord, how, how wrong they are and how foolish they are to not believe in miracles, to not believe in inspiration, to not believe, Father, how hard is it? If you can create the entire universe with a word and through the word of God, Jesus Christ, if you can do that, how hard is it to give a man a dream and then give the interpretation of that dream to another man? So, Lord, this is not uh, an amazing thing that we see. It's an easy thing for you, but everything's easy for you, Father. To us, we marvel. And marvel is what we should do. We thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who rules and reigns today and puts all of his enemies under his feet and will one day rule without an enemy. And Father, we are glad to be ruled by him. May the reign of Jesus Christ in its fullness come soon and we'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.